Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Mallory Mercer, Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement for the STAR Coalition. On this podcast series, we are going to shed light on some of the most stigmatized and misunderstood areas of the mental health industry. Our hope is that through this podcast, we can bring transparency and light to a system that is so heavily scrutinized. We aim to share vital information about a multitude of mental health topics while spreading the message that research equals hope. episode, I want to share a little blurb of data that I found while doing some research. In 2015, USC Schaefer conducted a cost of mental illness report, which found that the majority of individuals living with a serious psychological illness are either uninsured or are covered under Medicaid or the CHIP program. Across the U.S., hospitalization rates in 2014 were much higher for individuals living with schizophrenia, and even higher incidences of hospitalizations relating to schizophrenia were reported in the state of New York compared to the average U.S. state. In 2014, the average stay for an individual with schizophrenia to stay in the hospital in New York was 19.4 days, which is significantly longer than patients presenting in the hospital for other illnesses or problems such as heart attacks, hip replacements, or kidney transplants. These hospital stays can cost anywhere between $5,000 to $17,000 for patients, and these patients may be uninsured. While New York actually spent double the average U.S. stay on mental health expenditures in 2015, significant issues persisted. Now, New York is a state that did allocate large amounts of funds, and we still see patients falling through that treatment gap. I'm not sure what the answer is here, but I do know that putting our resources and our funds towards programs that have successful outcomes is very important. And one of those programs that I want to talk about today is People USA's Mobile Forensic Crisis Unit. This program helps step in those gaps where individuals may be uninsured and they may not have full coverage. We want to be a nation that does not have anyone go into debt over their medical bills. We want to be a nation that takes care of our people and especially those that live with mental illness that need our resources, they need our advocacy, and they need our voice. States are able to allocate minimal mental health funds compared to the needs at hand, and it is important that we focus any funds possible on programs that are showing positive results for individuals and for the communities that they're living in. It's important that regardless of where you live or your situation, you advocate for ways to fill care gaps. Whether you have lived experience or not, you are affected in some way by mental illness. Your friends, neighbors, children, or local officers can and will see the benefits of helping your community's mental health. All it takes is a small seed of hope to grow something that will remain for decades to come. Focusing on targeted individualized services has been very successful for residents in New York who have access to People USA. Today, we are going to speak about People USA's Forensic Mobile Crisis Unit with CEO and founder Steve Michio. Organizations like People USA stand in the service gap and work to alleviate traumatizing hospitalizations and incarcerations for individuals struggling with their mental health. Welcome back to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. Yes. So let's begin by explaining to our listeners exactly what the Forensic Mobile Crisis Units are and how they came about. 
Sure, sure. We do a lot of exploring gaps in service systems in different communities and things. And we use uh, one tool we use is a sequential intercept map that was created by uh, the Gain Center. And uh, that really maps out your criminal justice system and what's working, what's not working, where the gaps are and things. So we also knew just from our service experience of people in our communities, there's a lot of interaction with criminal justice and police officers on the streets and things like that. And we saw that they weren't getting the help they needed, they were getting more of the punishment of what was happening, you know, at that moment for them. So I am not necessarily a big fan of a co-responder police and social worker or peer kind of a model. What I like better is to assist the, the officers in a different way. So I looked at mobile teams around the country and what they were doing, and there's so many different variations of it. And so I created another variation that seems to work for us in our community in White Plains. And it's not the right along, but it is uh, an officer contacting our mobile team, which is made up of all peers, by the way. A couple have a, uh, a social work degree, but they're all people with lived experience. And they respond sometimes very quickly when it's needed. So it's really a, a, a person-centered kind of a approach to what do they need at that moment, or they can follow up within like 12 hours or so and, and meet with the individual. So it's not a, a critical issue for the individual. And I'll talk more about what we had to do to build that relationship with police officers to be more relaxed about the timing of everything. So I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit further, but that's where it came from. It's, you know, just a bunch of different variations of what we saw, the gaps, trying to fill those gaps and provide real good, solid service to the people in our communities. That's amazing. And every, you know, every community is different. So it's great that you kind of yes. know the landscape that you're working in and you're able to tailor that to your community specifically. So I know our dedicated officers are feeling increasingly overwhelmed with the nature of their careers, especially in recent years, and may not feel they have the time or insight to assist in that transfer of care. So many times, you know, they're not well equipped to handle serious mental illness or feel threaten themselves in high stress situations. So how do you even begin to work with police officers and then police departments? to get them to rely on your organizational model and your expertise? It's not easy all the time. I've had to go in and meet with them several times and explain to them what our intent was and what our goal was. But mostly I talk about how we're trying to make their jobs easier, give them additional tools on their tool belts and understand the culture of, of police departments. They're all very similar, but every, every department has its own culture. And we deal with probably 18 to 20 different departments in, in all the services that we provide. And and so you have to just pick up on the nuances of each of those environments and then the, the cultural diversity of the community and all. And once you start to get to a point where you're, you're building a relationship, you start to design and develop. The, the intent of the program of what you want to do and how you want them involved. At the same time, we're offering crisis intervention team training so that the officers themselves are just getting trained better to work in the communities because it is such a, a volatile environment for police right now where they're being blamed for everything. And I don't, I don't know if I'd want to be a police officer right now today. It, it's a difficult job and you're always under the microscope. And so we try to give them the tools that will prevent them from being, you know, on the news, basically, and, and doing something more, uh, you know, aberrant or, or violent or, or negative to a citizen in our community. So it's a lot of navigating, it's building the relationship, but also offering, and, and this is the good part is once we started doing this, we now have data to show them to say, this is how it works. This is what we can do for you and with you. So that's that's how you do it. And it's constant. The relationship is constant. You have to stay in touch with them constantly and work with them. And it turns out well for the community. 
And I'm sure just through those conversations, everyone is affected by mental health, especially in stressful jobs these officers have. So, you know, through these conversations, I hope that we're able to shed light on the stressors of life and how that can affect your brain wellness and give them resources yep. as well. I will link in our source notes resources for officers as well. Great. So. For our listeners who are interested in creating a mobile crisis unit such as yours or you know, who want to understand that relationship better, were there any specific barriers that you faced when cultivating these relationships with law enforcement officers and how did you overcome those? Yeah, there are still barriers because we're still growing. And so some of the barriers are that the police departments or officers, they don't want to be involved in the behavioral health world sometimes, or they don't want to be so focused on behavioral health because they're trying to create a safer community. So the CIT training helps them to understand that it's not just about the people in our community, it's about the officers too. So it provides officer wellness for them through that training, you know, during the week. But the other pieces, uh, you have county governments or local cities or whatever that are hearing about this, you know, the team we're trying to build and the barrier is them. They they don't want that. They want their communities to be very business oriented and, and flourishing and growing and, and not a, a negative connotation of behavioral health issues, even though they exist. It's not something they want to put their attention towards. So that's a barrier as well. And then Again, teaching them that it's more of a wellness approach to the community, that people are going to get better service. There's, we also focus on employment of everyone we work with and, and getting them back into work and jobs and quality of life that's better for them is a better quality of life for the community. So again, relationship building, showing the evidence and just being resilient and just keep going at it. That's what we do. I love that. And I think if we just it's such a small thing. If you can just plant a tiny seed and work on wellness and mental wellness in the community, it, it does. It impacts everyone, like you said, and it makes the community better overall. So yeah. I love that. I know that you opened when you kind of talked about a little bit of data and we opened this episode with data from almost a decade ago. Would you say that the units mostly serve individuals living with schizophrenia or are your service utilization showing different trends? We're showing a very different trend. We're serving a lot of folks that are just dealing with, you know, the, the usual depression, suicidality, homicidality, just struggles in life, you know, issues, anxiety. Anxiety is just through the roof in our communities now. I think COVID plays a big part in that, but also just life itself plays a big part in that. So it's not just the folks with schizophrenia or, or hearing voices or whatever it is they're dealing with. It's the community. And what we are also seeing in the trending, we are seeing people that are traditionally Traditionally in the system and have been in the system for years, but we're seeing a lot of new faces of younger people that are entering the system, unfortunately, and struggling. So the hopeful thing that we're working on is getting to the youth before they get to that criminal justice level. Right. So that's it's there is a trend and change in, in progress. And when they come to you, is it are they voluntarily utilizing your services or is it loved ones that are reaching out? It's, it's a bit of both, but it's always voluntary. We don't do any forced treatment or mandated treatment at all. And that's the beauty of my staff and how well-trained they are and sharing their lived experience, but also sharing that, you know, lending the vision of hope to people. People want to engage with us when they meet our staff. And, and that's the beauty of everything we've been doing. And just can't speak highly enough of, you know, how, how hard my staff work, but how successful they are with what they do. So let's talk about your staff a little bit. Can All you right. tell us who's running the unit and discuss that continuum of care an individual in crisis receives from the professionals at mm -hmm. your organization? 
Yeah, so we have several mobile teams now, and each one has a director. They are a, a social worker, but also, you know, they share their experience, their lived experience. So then under them, they have the peers. We have CASACs, which are substance and alcohol specialists that are certified. We have certified peer staff, and they're trained in a whole multitude of disciplines and how to engage motivational interviewing. They're very knowledgeable about the community services, traditional and non-traditional. They're also very focused on the wellness of the individual. So if there's a food security issue, they're, they're addressing that immediately. If there's a physical issue, they address that immediately. So they're looking at the whole person. They're not just looking at the perceived diagnosis or you know what's, what's wrong with the individual. It's what happened to them and also what do they need right now to get to a place where they can think more clearly for themselves on a path of recovery. So yeah, the staff are uh, just you know phenomenal and we're constantly training. We're, they're always in some kind of training to continue their, their knowledge base and to build their skills. And it, it just makes for a better organization and then better outcomes for the people in our community. I always love hearing about how much work your organization puts into training in that holistic care model, because I think that's what makes the difference. And I know that takes a lot of time and financial effort to spend training your staff. And everyone knows today, you know, that staffing is hard. Spending that mm-hmm. time is really hard. You have so many other obligations, but your commitment to your staff shows through the results of your program. So I just want to applaud you for that. It's so evident after talking with you, how much you care about your staff and support them. I care a lot. You're right. (laughs) So I know that every treatment plan looks a little bit different for each person because your plan is so personalized and holistic and unique. But could you describe the average treatment plan or process when someone comes in or is picked up by the mobile crisis unit? Yeah, there's really no average. It's finding out what's happening. Some of them are already uh, have already been ticketed. They're going to court, so we will go to court with them. Some, again, it's that assessment that my staff are doing when they first engage with them on their social determinant issues, their criminal issues, if there are any, connecting them, working with the DA's office, you know, working with the public defender's office. But there's it's never an average day. It's just uh, always what pops up for the individual at that time. And, and that's how crisis is. I mean, that's, you know, when people People are dealing with that stuff. It's what's in front of them. And so my staff take care of the what's in front of them and then work on the back end of what's, you know, what do they want to do? What's good for them? How are they going to get to a better place? So it's, uh, that's, that's the average, you know, that would be the average, I guess, approach is really getting to know the individual, building that relationship, building that trust. So then we can move forward with them. And I like that you talked about the social determinants because those factors come into play so often and we may not even realize it. So just taking that into effect and you guys know the landscape so well. I know you guys do so much research to figure out what's going on in your community. You're always communicating with individuals. So I think that really is the key there, knowing, you know, how to make them better so they don't have to keep coming back and using your services. So can you discuss, I love results. I'm a results-based person. We know this. Can you discuss the results of the Forensic Mobile Crisis Unit in the communities? I can. Right now, we're very proud that we're right now at 98% of criminal justice diversion. So that means that our staff are in the courts. If they're in the courts, they're getting alternatives to incarceration, getting lesser sentences. I think our lesser sentences is 87% right now. A shorter time in jail because of us, if they do end up going to jail, is about 47% less time that they're spending in there because we stay connected, of course, and work with the judge and work with the, you know, the, the legal teams 
years in saying we have a plan and they've agreed to the plan and we get them out. So we are showing some true diversion. And on the other end of things, we're showing on the CIT trained police side is less workman's compensation cases, less uh, injury to people in communities, less injury to, to this, you know, the, the police officers and the people in the communities and the people served. So it's showing some great results. And eventually we're going to move into more research. Right now we're researching our stabilization centers. Then we're going to move into the mobile teams and the respite houses. But we want to get into more research to really look at, you know, a deeper dive into the outcomes of how we're doing it and why we're doing it and what makes it work. Research is, is always the key word for us. You know, we, research of every kind is so important. So I, I want to talk about, you know, since this model seems so amazing and so helpful, you're you're in New York currently, but I think every state needs something like this. So let's talk about funding. I know states are constantly struggling with allocating mental health funding, but recently some bills have passed that allocate billions of dollars to combat the mental health crisis in our nation. Can you speak to the ways that these units are funded and are are you seeing increases in support due to these bills or are they kind of lagging a little bit? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think we're seeing a bit of both. We're seeing a little bit of lag in certain states that are not really, haven't figured it out yet. The funding that's coming, the large pools of money that are coming out of the federal government are not sustainable funds. They're just like startups and, you know, a couple of years or whatever. The trick is the sustainability. In New York, the state has adopted under the 1115 waiver with Medicaid, Medicare and, and private insurance, a way of funding the mobile teams now under the insurances that is sustainable. So we're, we're not quite started with that yet because the state and the uh, federal Medicaid CMS haven't approved the plan, but there's, we're very close to it. Could happen any day. And we know it's coming, which is great because now that makes the mobile team sustainable. And then this is any state can do this if they, you know, look for this Medicaid waiver as well, but it's getting the leadership to have the, the will to do it. And there are some states that just don't want to expand their Medicaid costs. And there are states that, you know, are willing to, but don't know how. So we're working with several states right now on the on the Medicaid pieces of it. And then we're also learning more about how to braid funding, how to braid it through other Medicaid options and, and other funding streams that are out there and available. And with the revenue you can build on your unrestricted revenue to put into other programs and other services. It's not the best way to go, but it is one of the ways to go to at least get it started and, and build a sustainability into it and then grow it from there. But there's no easy answer to it, unfortunately. Yeah. So you could do like private or investment groups could absolutely be involved in this too, if they were interested. They Is that what I'm hearing? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They could Great. work. Well, I hope that someone listening, if this is something that is really touching their heart, I know that this has become a passion of mine is learning about these mobile teams. I hope that you reach out to us. I hope you reach out to Steve and can learn more because the model that he has going is so amazing. And I think that it's important that we gather data so that more states can have access to resources and more people can have access to these resources. So if any of our listeners would be interested in researching the impact of mobile crisis response units to address mental health crises, please contact Steve at S-M-I-C-C-I-O at people-usa.org. That's all the time that we have for today. Thank you, as always, Steve, for your passion and your insight regarding compassionate care options for individuals with mental illness. We so appreciate you, and I look forward to having you back on the podcast soon. All right. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. 